the blessing that's already been ours today to gather, to assemble, has truly been great. To sing these songs of encouragement, these songs that have lifted up our spirit and brought us to appreciate the grandeur that's ours of God's creation. We're thankful for each and every person that's here. I know that as we're thankful for the sunshine, for instance, today, we also are mindful of many on our sick list and others, and our mind rushes to those concerns. And it's certainly our hope that the blessing of God by way of improvement and the other things will certainly be very quickly to come their way. The lesson today, as you may have already noted, is going to be a little bit of a different structure or character than is sometimes the case. This opening slide, basically an introductory one, will share with you that though there are some lessons that are more topical in structure, meaning that a particular theme is developed throughout a majority or at least a large part of the Word of God. But there are other lessons that are called expository. And in those, you simply take a verse or set of verses and step through them in some detail and seek to extract the richness and the power of what was said on those occasions. Would you be turning to Matthew, the 19th chapter? We'll be looking at the first few verses of that chapter this morning. In fact, the first ten of them will be the source of our study today. You may notice furthermore on that slide that there are some preparatory remarks that might not be out of order. There are few subjects, I suppose, more practical in structure that are more controversial or at least more troubling than the one that we'll be discussing today. It has to do with marriage and divorce. It has to do with remarriage, if you please. And we all know the emotion that can be powerfully connected to those kind of subjects. The situations that, in fact, are prevalent even in our day. And as we shall soon discover, they were even timely in the Lord's day. It is for that reason near the bottom of that slide. It would seem that from the teaching of the Bible, nothing is more fundamental to the well-being more than likely of a family and of a nation than is the structure of how marriage is to be regarded and considered as valuable and lifted so highly. It is with that in mind. Let's close that slide and provide a statement of motivation. And then we'll devote our attention starting in verse number 1 following that one. We likely each have been involved in discussions with individuals who would ask about their own marital situation and what in the Word of God would have to share relative to those situations. But if you'll notice near the top of that slide, there's a general feeling it would seem in our day that marriage is really not ultimately that significant. And by that I mean, look at how easy it can be obtained. You and I, I would think, should almost recoil under the consideration that for about $125, you can get a divorce. It's all it takes. It doesn't matter if there's children involved or not. It doesn't matter if there's any supposed reason for it or not. Just go and secure the services of a lawyer, and for about $125, you can have your divorce. That seems to say something about how our society devalues marriage. You can just get out of it, if you please, so easily, at least in the mind of men. Not so in the mind of God. As a highlight to that, look at that statistic at the bottom. 
less than three years ago, in the year 2017, did you notice how many divorces there were in our country alone? In the United States of America alone, 787,251 divorces. That averages out to over 2,150 divorces every single day. That was in our country alone. Don't count Australia. Don't count Asia. Don't count Europe or Africa. That's just our little country alone. Our world, it would seem, would be so much better off if we could just return to the passage, among others, in the Word of God that we'll discuss today, and to re-cement in our thinking the nature, the value, and integrity attached to that blessed subject known as marriage. It is for that reason, let's close that slide like this. It is absolutely vital, may I say again, absolutely vital, that we let God do the speaking on this subject. What I think, what you think, really means nothing. What the collective opinion of man may be is absolutely irrelevant. All that we care about is what does God say about this. For after all, many times strong emotions could come to be involved and we mustn't let the emotions determine what our perspective on what's right is. God determines what's right whether you or I agree with it or not. What is right? Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. We'll start at verse number 1. But when we come to this next slide, what we shall do is somewhat separate the chapter into sections and look at them in order. First of all, the first two verses. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, He departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them there. The Lord had been teaching prior to this in the area you and I would call Galilee. That was the northernmost district in the land of Palestine. And in as much as the Lord had been laboring in that area, we are rather quickly told near the end of verse number 1, it says, He came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. I've asked you to notice that according to Mark's account that goes along with this one, the Lord crossed over the Jordan and in fact traveled southward on the eastern side and then crossed back over the Jordan when He got down to the area of Judea. What that means is at least at that point, He bypassed the area of Samaria. Now we know other times the Lord had much to say in efforts in that place, but this time... He needed to get to Jerusalem, you see, because Passover was coming. And He soon, of course, would ultimately be crucified on that occasion. But for right now, the journey that you'll notice brought us to this observation in verse 2. Great multitudes followed Him. The Lord's popularity was dramatic. There were many who were very keenly interested not only in what He taught, but what, of course, He was able to do in addition. Because verse 2 says, He healed them. Some of us, I suppose, often know what a chaotic or frenetic day can be like. Imagine if a person like Jesus had the power of healing. How many people would be lined up to talk to you? How many people would make their way to where you were in the hope of healing some sick relative? It says, great multitudes followed Him. I suspect the Lord became tired, I suspect maybe on occasion in light of being surrounded by large multitudes like this, 
you and I could easily understand how one could become irritable or how one could become a bit beside himself. Nothing like that happened to Jesus here. It says He healed them. He didn't turn them away. He didn't insist that they come back another time. He healed them. All of that prepares us for verses 3 and following. In this next section, let's simply cast a spotlight on verse 3 by itself. It says, The Pharisees also came unto Him, tempting Him, and saying unto Him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? The Pharisees, they frequently had the situation in mind to come to Jesus. And on many occasions, they didn't have the utmost of integrity in the nature of their coming. They wanted to trick Jesus. They weren't trying to learn truth. They weren't in it trying to learn really what the Master had to say, ultimately in relation to the things of God. The text says they were tempting Him. You may notice on that slide, that really brings us to note a bit about the background of that day and time in ancient Israel. Ever since the days of the distant Old Testament, there had been, of course, the understanding attached to those special priests and teachers in Israel. And so it was that there are those who came to be rabbis. They came to be well-respected, very knowledgeable people of the law. Shortly before the actual days of Jesus, there had been rather two notable teachers along this line, two notable rabbis, and I've asked you to note their names. One of them was Rabbi Shammai, the other Rabbi Hillel. Now they have at least through the considerations of Jewish history come down to occupy a very high rank of respect and a high rank of understanding of appreciation about their estimation and understanding of the law. I might ask you to notice Rabbi Hillel had actually died prior to this. But his influence was so strong, there was a group of followers that gave themselves to the following of what Rabbi Hillel had taught. You may notice at the bottom of the slide, this Rabbi Hillel, you and I today would regard as a rather liberal sort of fellow. And by that I mean this. He didn't think it was wrong to tell a white lie. If it would get you out of a circumstance, if it would in fact get you out of a tight spot, he didn't think there was anything wrong with that. On the other hand, when it came to divorce, he didn't think, and he taught so, that it really wasn't that critical. If you don't like the way she looks first thing in the morning, that's grounds for divorce, he taught. If you don't like the way she fixed your supper last night, in his mind, that was acceptable grounds for divorce. And this group of followers of his adopted that same kind of approach. But that other group that I mentioned, Shammai, very different very much more committed to what we would regard at least by the word conservative. White lies are wrong. There is no justification for lying in any case, Shammai would say. But when it came to the subject of divorce, he also taught there was but one and only one cause for it that would be pleasing to God. And it was sexual infidelity, what we'd call fornication. 
Now you can see the large difference in these schools of thought. Hillel taught one thing, and there were large numbers of people who agreed and taught that which he did. And this other group, Shammai, taught a very different thing. And so these Pharisees came to Jesus thinking they had him on the horns of a dilemma. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And they just knew if he sided with Hillel, he would distance himself from all of those who respected Shammai. If he sided with Shammai, he would distance himself from all of those who had confidence in the teaching of Hillel. No doubt they just knew that they had him backed into a proverbial corner. How would the Lord get out of this? How would He answer the question? What would He say? As you and I turn to the next verse, I would ask you again to notice at the top, I've tried to highlight that this other person, that I've called Shammai, as far as I was able to tell, he died in A.D. 30, which oddly enough is the very year that we're now reading in Matthew. Now whether he was already dead in that year, I don't know. But let's go to verse 4. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And the Lord said, this time, verse 4, And he, that's Jesus, answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. The Lord's initial reply, so stern and at least so dramatic in the way He approached it. They had just asked Him a question. He answered with a question. Have you not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? There are probably times in which you and I are rather disillusioned when somebody answers our question with another question. But there are times when that's the appropriate thing. You and I know the Lord always did what was right. I've asked you to notice a few of these comments. What did the Lord say? Do you see any mention in what the Lord taught about either Shammai or Hillel? Although that may have been an interesting background, Jesus did not turn to them as His source of authority had no interest in many ways in what either Hillel or Shammai may well have taught. The source of authority in verse 4, have you not read? Read what? The latest dictates of the Sanhedrin? No. What the Lord pointed them to was the Word of God. Have you not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? No wonder in that light that next comment follows pretty quickly. Isn't it amazing that he appealed to something that even predated Moses? Moses, of course, was highly regarded, incredibly respected as the in initial lawgiver of the people of Israel. It was he who brought those laws written by the very finger of God on the tablets down from Mount Sinai. But Jesus didn't appeal even to Moses. He went back to the first book in the Old Testament the one before the life of Moses. In Genesis chapter 2, we read the following. The record there, easy enough to, to bring back to our heart. God had created Adam, and it was not good that he was alone. And he brought a deep sleep upon Adam, using a rib from his side, 
He fashioned a woman. In Genesis chapter 2, verse number 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now that statement, Jesus had asked, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? That statement of the God's creation in Genesis 1, 26 and 7 draws us to appreciate the following. The sweetness of that refrain, and Jesus said that that which took place then serves as a model, a guide, an informational said, if you will, in light of what you're asking me now. The two were not separate and apart. For that reason, let's go into verse 5. And I've asked you to notice that verse together with verse 6. And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. The additional comments that we might make draw us to this one. The Lord, again, as we noted, didn't quote from Moses, oddly enough, at least from His life and times. He went back to the very status of the creation, borrowing the language of Genesis 2.24. And as He did so, in verses 5 and 6, he highlighted this truth. Wherefore they, that's the man and his wife, are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. What a powerful statement. A remarkable passage again making no specific reference at all to either Hillel or Shammai. They are not the source of authority. The authority, of course was what God had embedded in the nature of marriage since the very time that He established it. As you and I close that slide, did you notice in part of that statement, they had just asked, is it right, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for every cause? And now, Jesus has said, a man should leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they should be one flesh. Any statement at all in that passage about divorce, about the disillusionment, if you please, attached to that marriage? Well, isn't it amazing that now the Lord amplifies all of that? As you and I close that slide, that statement of one flesh, which leads also to this one. This concept of one flesh, that which a man and his wife become, is mentioned three times in the Word of God. Three times that idea presented to embed in our thinking the understanding of how significant and how ultimately profound the concept in marriage is. In Ephesians 5 passage, Paul there even used it to teach us of that unity between Jesus and His church. And that's fascinating. That is truly fascinating. At the very least, you and I could say this. They had just asked about divorce. And it was a problem in that society, just like it is today. It was one in which there were those who simply chose to secure a divorce and to rather soon enter into another marriage. But you and I know that the Lord's here going to speak very definitively about that in just a moment. 
for right now, why don't we introduce this? Our God, as far as His appreciation of the general embodiment of divorce, He says He hates it. Malachi 2 verse 16, I hate, God says, putting away. This man and woman that I have joined, that in fact I have enrolled, if you please, in the ledger book of heaven, that they, one flesh in my sight and united appropriately in that fashion, for man to tear it asunder for causes and means that have no biblical authority. Now, when Malachi penned that statement for us in Malachi 2.16, the children of Israel, of course, had entered into a set of behaviors in which they didn't respect marriage as they should. The Lord's statements continue. And on the slide, how about verses 7 and 8? We've just learned that in verse 6, "...what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder." Doesn't that immediately imply that what Hillel had been teaching was just not right. Remember, he said, whatever you happen not to like about her, it's sufficient grounds for divorce, he would say. But Jesus now says, look, what God has joined, let not man separate. It was not, in fact, the idea from the very beginning that that was to be the case. They ask him another question, verse 7. They say unto him, that they is those Pharisees, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? He saith unto them, that he being Jesus, Moses suffered, I'm sorry, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Let's pause again. So after hearing what the Lord had said in verse 6, namely, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, they then ask a question. Having a sufficient knowledge of the law of Moses, they knew that Moses had said something about divorce. In fact, you and I read that in the book of Deuteronomy. But they particularly ask this in verse 7, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Might we note the language they used? Did you hear what they said? They said, Moses commanded us to put away our wives. Is that what Moses said? That's not what Moses said. Moses didn't give a command that it be done. He gave permission or the allowance in circumstances whereby they could select to do it. Didn't give a commandment for them to do it. Now the Lord, as you'll notice, was quick to say in verse number 8, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, did you notice? Now, those people weren't literally alive back in the days of Moses, but their ancestors were, and their fathers were, and of course, the knowledge concerning the children of Israel. Jesus said, people like you, your ancestors, they were alive back then, and they had hard hearts. They didn't turn their attention to the truth of God and live it out as they should. And in that twilight era, Moses made the statement in Deuteronomy that, in fact, permitted this divorce you're talking about. But might we never forget the fact that from the very beginning, from the very outset of creation, the Lord said it was never intended that way. It was never meant to be like that. 
So all of those episodes we read about in the Old Testament where those otherwise worthy figures, and they didn't have the kind of families that we know they should have. As much as we might respect David, we've got to even admit, he sure made his mistakes when it came to wives and when it came to family. You and I today would say that God has now put in place His perfect law. He isn't tolerating anything short of that any longer. From the very beginning, it was not so. Now you and I have noted in verse 4 that He went back and said, Have you not read? And so from the very outset, this was God's intent for marriage. This is it. So with that in mind, what happened? There was a man named Adam, and God fashioned one woman for her, for him. And in so doing, He brought her to the man, and He married them. Now, you and I appreciate in that that so many things that are very much against what we commonly see being wrestled with today. There are those who have now wished to redefine marriage in such a way that it will at least accommodate other kinds of situations like same-sex unions. God made a woman for the man. He didn't make another man for him, and He didn't make another woman for Eve. At that very twilight set, Stage in time, we notice He made them male and female. Now that idea, as simple as it may appear, is nonetheless one that amazingly people in our day seemingly are willing to turn a blind eye to. Let's go back to verse number 8. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. The word beginning... Isn't it true that we are now learning something fascinating, or at least being reminded of it? There are those who make the claim that marriage has changed over time. May I say that again? That the very idea, the nature and character of it has evolved over time so that every new generation in society should have the liberty of understanding what is the basic nature that fits that day and time. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. The reason I mention that is our Supreme Court used that very argument in June of 2015 when they were giving their decision with respect to a case. They made the claim that marriage has changed over time and therefore every new society and every new generation has the right to determine it. Did you notice something? These Pharisees, about 2,000 years ago, came to Jesus and said, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? When the Lord answered in the next verse, Have ye not read? He stepped back 4,000 years prior to this for His answer. May I ask, had marriage changed in the 4,000 years in between? Had there been anything about it that could reasonably be said to have been different? Absolutely not. We now are 6,000 or so years removed from those events in Genesis, and may we still say nothing has changed. Marriage's definition hasn't changed, and it never shall. Men may try to tamper with it. Men may try to redefine it. And men may try to interject their thinking, but they shall never succeed. Because God has given His definition. Our discussion of verse number 8 now brings us to verse 9. 
Verse number 9, the Lord continues to say this. This verse, now with the Lord's statement, reads as follows, And I say unto you, we might even pause before we finish reading the verse. Again, not only had he not appealed to Hillel, not only had he not appealed to Shammai, not only had he not appealed to Moses, he now says, I say unto you. This is the Messiah talking. The very Son of God, the one who not only came from heaven, but disseminated the revealed will of God to the human family. He says, I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Our Savior set forth before those Pharisees this remarkable and simple to understand law concerning divorce and remarriage. I say unto you, the next word is the word whosoever. Do you notice with me how broad that is? Whether rich or poor, uneducated or not, no matter what country you're from, any human being, every person that shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and proceeds to marry another, is guilty of adultery. It's just that simple. Now you and I notice that although emotion and other considerations may well come into the thinking of many, the basic law the Lord gave is very straightforward. I've asked you to notice a few comments. As you can see here, there have been those throughout time who've wondered, this looks like it's stated from the perspective of the man. Whoso shall put away his wife? What about a woman? Can she put away her husband for some cause other than fornication? And can she then remarry? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, Mark's version, as I've asked you to notice, states it from her perspective. They're both the same. Let's go one step further that next comment. So that individual, that person, man or woman, who divorces his or her wife or husband, as the case may be, for some cause other than fornication, and then proceeds to remarry, that person is now guilty of adultery. Now, by an initial consideration, I know there are many in our day who may wonder how serious that is. And yet, when you and I turn to Galatians chapter 5, we're told how serious it is. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, let me start reading in verse 19. It's there that the inspired apostle made this conclusion. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery. The very first element in the list, adultery. Fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I've told you before, even as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. There's how serious it is, isn't it? That individual who thus does this, divorcing without any cause and fornication, and then remarries, that person can't go to heaven like that. That's a serious matter. 
Now, no wonder as Jesus made that teaching, I'm sure that there were many in that audience hearing Him say this who were rather dumbfounded because they'd never heard certainly Hillel say anything like this. And I would even offer that sometimes Shammai didn't say things that sound like this. For that reason, why don't we close that by noting, how did those other people who were there hearing respond? Let's read verses 10 and 11. His disciples say unto him, so this is the very ones listening to Jesus make this teaching, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Doesn't that highlight what they heard him say and they understood what he said? They understood very well. That man who divorces his wife for some cause other than fornication and remarries, he's now guilty of adultery. And they, upon hearing it, said, Well, Jesus, if that's the way it is, it's better for the man not to marry. One last thing in that. I didn't emphasize the latter part of verse 9, but now's the time to do it. So we've already learned then that that person who divorces his wife and then proceeds to procure another marriage. That initial divorce not being for fornication, we've learned he's guilty of adultery. What about the person he marries? This second marriage he's entered into, maybe that woman was completely eligible to marry. Maybe she'd never been married before. What's now true of her? Let's read the latter part of verse 9 again. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. In other words, that man, he was now not eligible to marry because he hadn't divorced his wife because of fornication. And this woman, whom he has now married the second time, she's in adultery too. So she may well lose her soul in hell because of the foolish choice he made. Marriage is serious. We simply need to ensure that we instill in our next generation the truths of what the Lord taught and that we try ourselves to understand how serious these things are. As you can see at the close of that slide, when the disciples understood this, the gravity was easily enough appreciated. And it brings us to the close of our lesson. This analysis, this appreciation of the first ten verses of Matthew 19, it will always be valuable. Every generation in every society until the end of time. Critical, needful, marriage is the foundation for healthy boys and girls to grow up and understand what a family is like and the way God would intend it to be. And the strength of a nation will in many ways rest on the well-being mentally and socially of those who have been reared in a family appreciative of God's law of marriage. We each know that based on that statistic I mentioned at the beginning of the lesson, 787,000 divorces in one year. We are in the midst of a set of generations now that have lost by and large the understanding of the specialness of marriage. It's up to you and I as the salt of the earth and as the light of the world to hold forth the banner of God's truth on subjects like this one so that one more time we can hopefully redirect a citizenry to appreciate what is God's teaching on a subject like this one.
And to not only hold to it faithfully ourselves, but to encourage it in the lives and minds of others. Today, as we come near the close of this slide, our basic goal has simply been to let God do the talking. It's not our interest to interject our opinions and our feelings because obviously we're going to legislate in favor of ourselves if we're given the opportunity. But that cannot happen. The Lord always does what's right, Mark seven thirty seven, And did He not say this in John twelve forty eight, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. I hope we've been encouraged by God's simplicity on a subject like this one. But may we also say at this time that even His plan of salvation is simple. Every person who would become a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ must believe in Jesus. Didn't Jesus say in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you and I will believe in Him as a Son of God, believing in the thoroughness and fullness of His teachings, and then repent of our sins in response and an answer to that, confessing Him as a Son of God and then being baptized, we too can have our name and roles in the Lamb's book of life and march forward toward heaven. Today, if there would be anyone in this audience that perhaps would be in that position, we'd love to help you. But if there's a wayward child of God, someone who wants new faithfulness but is no longer there, you've begun to follow pathways which are not good, perhaps even bringing disgrace upon the very church that Jesus died for, bringing disgrace upon the name of Jesus Christ you realize you can be forgiven of that. If you'll repent of it, and if you will make confession of it, we're told in 1 John 1 that Jesus will forgive you. And today, if we could help you in either of those ways, we invite and encourage you to come while together we stand and sing.